Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Our next speaker is Dr. Raj Dasgupta. So let's welcome Dr. Raj Dasgupta today. He's speaking on the causes and consequences of poor sleep in the elderly. Hey, thank you very much. And before I get started, I just want to thank everyone for inviting me to the 6th Annual Brain Health Forum. You know, November is Alzheimer's Month, and I'm very passionate about that. So when they asked me to be part of the panel, hey, I just couldn't say no about that. Um, what's our roadmap for today? So, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, aging changes, you know, as we get older. We're going to talk about the sleep architecture and something called our circadian rhythm. We're going to talk about the, the causes and consequences of poor sleep as we get older. And they really asked me to talk about some disease states. And what are those disease states? We're going to talk about, hey, what about obstructive sleep apnea? I think everyone knows what that is and knows someone who snores. Something called REM movement disorder, uh, insomnia. Tell me who's not suffering from insomnia. And we'll comment about some circadian rhythm problems. But I think that it's very appropriate when we start this lecture off that we start off with why do we even need sleep? You know, why do we need it? So I'll tell you one thing, you know, getting good sleep sounds really easy, but it's one of the hardest things in the, in the whole world. And when you don't get good sleep in, you know, it affects every single organ in the body. And what is good sleep? I always say it's about getting the two cues, the quantity of sleep and the quality of sleep. So what is good quality sleep? That means can you go to those deeper stages? Can you go to something called REM sleep? Because only in these deeper stages and in REM sleep, do you actually rejuvenate the body, rejuvenate the mind, to be refreshed, to be alert the next day? So getting good sleep is essential. So I think that sleep is more than just what? Hitting the reset button every day. Sleep is more than being frustrated in the morning when you hit that snooze button. You know what I'm talking about. But I wanna say is how do we sleep in general? And sleep is actually uh, based upon two competing forces. One is called the homeostatic drive, which is what we call the sleep need, your need to sleep. And the second is called our circadian rhythm, which is the urge to sleep. So 
In this little diagram here, I'm showing these two drives. So what is this homeostatic drive? I guess as a sleep doctor, I call it process S. And basically it means the more that you stay up during the day, the more you want to sleep at night. And what is some kind of biochemistry behind it? What drives it is something called adenosine. So, you know, adenosine as it builds up during the day makes you want to sleep. So think about it this way, you know, every single cell organ in your body needs food. And what is the food for the body? It's something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So the more you exercise and move and think and do lectures, you're using that ATP and it cleaves off these phosphates. So what kind of builds up at the end of the day? Adenosine. And so as adenosine builds up over here, that's your drive to sleep. And you want to know something cool? Everyone always asks, well, who drinks coffee? Um, a lot of people. How does caffeine work? Caffeine works by inhibiting adenosine, and that's why you kind of uh, it makes you kind of a little bit more alert. And what is going to be the other process that makes you sleep is our circadian rhythm. So, you know, all humans have their own circadian rhythm. It's like 24 hours plus or minus, and we have to entrain our circadian rhythm to the solar day, the 24-hour day. So what entrains our circadian rhythm to the day is all these things that influence us to wake up during the morning and go to bed at night. And the most important thing is light. And that's why we need lots of light in the morning and not so much light at night. And it's this balance between the drive to sleep and your alertness that actually will initiate sleep, hopefully at night for most people. So what did I say is that what entrains our circadian rhythm, it's going to be light. And no one should be surprised right now that it's hard to sleep no matter where you are because there's a lot of light pollution. In fact, this is a shot of LA and this is actually during the night. So my question for all of you listening today is, who can we blame for all that light pollution? Any guesses? Well, you know, maybe one day you folks could see me in a live lecture, but the answer here is gonna be Thomas Edison. And what did Thomas say? Let read this quote down here. Sleep is a criminal waste of time inherited from our cave days. Thomas, you're a little cruel to everyone. But yes, uh, maybe you could blame him for all these bright lights over here. But with that being said, let's go to our first question about aging, okay? So with aging, who can tell me the right answer is? There is a tendency to go up, uh, to go to bed later and get up earlier. How's that sound? With aging, the ability to phase shift is enhanced, meaning to, to, you know, to shift your time to go to bed and time to wake up, like what we're doing tomorrow, which is going to be that annoying daylight savings. Uh, C, awakenings and arousals occur more frequently in the elderly. Or is it the amplitude of body temperature change is more pronounced, you get a bigger drop in body change temperature in the elderly. Any guesses over here? But, you know, for time's sake, you only gave me like 30 minutes, you know, the answer is going to be, unfortunately, as you get older, you're going to have more awakenings and more arousals. They're going to occur more frequently. Let's see. So let's look at these other answers. So as you age, you know, you may become more of what we call a morning lark. And that's going to be you're going to go to bed early and wake up early. Sometimes people confuse that for insomnia because you're waking up early, but it's just because your circadian rhythm has changed a little bit. So as you get older, think about going to bed early and waking up early. As far as that temperature drop, look at these curves down here. There's a younger folk who's going to be in the red and the older is going to be in the green. And notice how that temperature change is more pronounced when you're younger. So how does that apply clinically? Is that remember when you lay down, your body cools down, when you get up, your body warms up. 
And who out there heard of that old saying, hey, taking a warm bath before going to bed helps you sleep? That's actually kind of true, you know, because if you take a warm bath, you're going to have more of that temperature change. And because there's more of a temperature drop when you're younger, that could be one of the many reasons why people when you're younger could actually sleep better. And this whole thing about phase shifting, oh, I mean, who's annoyed about daylight savings tomorrow? Like, yes, or the end of daylight savings. It, it's harder as you get older to actually accommodate to things like jet lag and changes in your circadian rhythms. The answer here is going to be C. So when I think about, you know, what happens to, you know, the different stages of sleep as we get older, I kind of put this graph up here. So notice it starts at five years of age. I'm not even talking about newborns, infants, or toddlers. I'm starting at preschool here. And look at the time. Time is going to be on the y-axis. Look how much time you need to sleep when you're younger. And as you get older, your total sleep time definitely decreases. This thing called WASO, wake after sleep onset. When you're young, you don't have a lot of that. But as you get older, multiple awakenings throughout the night. Look at REM sleep. We got these awesome dreams when we're earlier, <laughs> vivid dreams at least, and that, that really crucial REM sleep really decreases as you get older. S stands for slow wave sleep. That's a very you know uh, deep stage of sleep. And when we're young, we get lots and lots of this uh, slow wave sleep, delta sleep, deep sleep. You know why? All my doctors listening today, who could tell me what hormone gets released in slow wave sleep, deep sleep that you get when you're young? I'll just answer for the team. It's called growth hormone. So maybe there's a reason why our parents always yelled at us when we were younger about going to bed because they just wanted us to grow, you know, but we don't get a lot of that as we get older, but kind of like the lighter stages of sleep and uh, stage N1 and N2, it stays the same throughout life. So these are going to be some of the recommendations of sleep of how much sleep time you need. In the dark blue, that's what I call the sweet spot right here. And then there's always a range. So of course, when you're young, look at that range up to like 19, 20 hours of sleep. But as you get older, you know, I mean, your total sleep time that you need comes to be around seven to eight hours. And in the elderly, it's kind of like bookshelf between the ranges of maybe even five to nine hours. So where did these recommendations come from? Well, one of the sources is going to be the National Sleep Foundation. The other is the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And what do they find out? That adults over 65 years of age, you know, if they sleep from six to nine hours, that's going to be the goal. You know what? They got better cognition. They also have a lower rate of mental and physical illness. They got improved quality of life. But you know, just because you're sleeping long, that's not a good thing that if you have longer sleep duration than what's recommended, hey, there are some data to show there may be increased morbidity and mortality. So what's my motto? My motto is down here. I put it in quotes. Sleep quality may change, but the sleep need does not as you're going to be older. So I put this here to kind of show what I mean. So what happens as we get older? Let's look at the bottom part of this graph to make it simple. So what decreases as you get older? Your total sleep time, your sleep efficiency, that slow wave sleep, that delta sleep I was talking about, and less REM sleep. But what does increase is your wake after sleep onset, the number of arousals that you get you know, from sleep, and it takes longer to fall asleep, and that's multifactorial, including that less of a change in your body temperature. So, when we talk about sleep problems in the elderly, it's it's multifactorial. It's never just one thing, right? There could be some psychosocial uh, and behavioral factors. We talked about sleep changes in the sleep architecture just right now. 
How about like comorbidities? How about, let me mention um, heart failure, COPD, depression, anxiety, you know? What about having a primary sleep disorder? And we're gonna talk about that in a few minutes, like things like sleep apnea and restless leg. But look at this big uh, orange box here, medications. And you know what I'm gonna go at. When you look at your patients or you being a patient, how many medications are you on? And how many of these medications sleep, affect sleep? So there are medications that affect daytime drowsiness, you know, like taking antihistamines or antipsychotics, you know, people are on antidepressants, people are on pain medications like opioids, or maybe they're taking things that activate and make them more alert at night. I mean, everyone's on steroids, unfortunately. My wife's a rheumatologist. She gives steroids like candy, you know, and there could be primary sleep disorders out there that prevent you from going to sleep. Or there are even medications that will disrupt your sleep. So what causes cough? Who has heart failure or high blood pressure on an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril? Or how about if you have too much fluid on the body and your, and your doctor gives you furosemide or otherwise known as Lasix and you're peeing all the time? Or how about this one, having diabetes and you have low blood sugar? Well, you may not even wake up if you have blood, low blood sugar at night. So medications is such a huge part. So I put this slide here to kind of pound home what I'm saying about having comorbidities. So as you get older, the chances of having two or more comorbidities increases with age. So by the time you're around 85 plus, 82% of elderly are gonna have more than two comorbidities. What are examples of these comorbidities? High blood pressure, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, heart failure, respiratory disease, depression. And the more comorbidities you have, the chances of getting a sleep problem on top of that is even higher. So it shows here on this graph that the more comorbidities that you have, having a sleep problem on top of that uh, increases immensely. So back to talking about what causes poor sleep in the elderly, let's talk about these psychosocial and behavioral factors over here. So substance, you know what I mean? I have patients who are elderly who still drink alcohol at night. They're like, Dr. Raj, I love my three fingers of scotch and I'm giving him a lecture. So you'll be surprised, you know, in CBD, I have many patients over 60 using CBD, unfortunately. And how about being a caregiver, you know? So if you're wondering who this is over here, this is my mom and this is my little girl and my mom who's probably listening today. I mean, she's like the super amazing caregiver. She takes care of my dad. And, you know, one of the things that just jumps out at me is at nighttime, because she loves my dad so much, when my dad goes to the bathroom, she's already kind of alert to make sure she turns on the hallway light or he doesn't trip on anything. But what about her sleep? You know, I mean, so being an amazing caregiver is, is great. And, but you always have to worry about your own sleep there. And by the way, this is my little girl, Sadie, and my mom's a great grandma to her. What about bereavement? You know what I mean? We're going to be losing loved ones. You know what I mean? And that's going to be playing into sleep. Social isolation, you know, COVID-19, how tough was that? You know, being isolated from other people. And of course, as you get older, the loss of physical functioning, you're not going to the gym, you're not exercising, you're not getting out of the house and getting exposed to light, which you need to get good sleep. So these are going to be all these factors. But of course, there are going to be these primary sleep disorders. And that's what they had me talk about today. So we're going to talk about these four over here, circadian rhythm, OSA, REM movement disorder, and insomnia. And I'm sure many people love this picture. There's there's the husband right here, mouth wide open. There There's the, the pet and there's the poor wife over there. 
So when we talk about sleep in the elderly, um, what happens is when you have these sleep disturbances? Well, I think I mentioned already there is some cognitive decline. Sleep, poor sleep is definitely associated with depression, disability and activities of daily living, poor quality of life, and of course, impaired physical function. And there's definitely data to show that getting poor sleep is associated with the fall risk. And, you know, practicing medicine so far, I, it's, it's strange and odd that even though being a lung doctor, my, my patients aren't going to die from their COPD. They're not going to die from their asthma. You know what my older patients are going to die from? They're just going to fall. No one plans to fall, but they do. It's the worst, trust me. And if I could do anything to help someone not fall, then that's something that's very passionate about me. And no one wants to be in a nursing home. I can't think of anything more painful. And if by being able to get good sleep, if that actually reduces the chance of going getting institutionalized, then that's important. So in honor of this month, I wanted to put a couple slides of Alzheimer's disease and sleep. And some of this was really shocking. I did some research for this presentation. You know, you know, by 2050, this is scary. 60% of patients above the age of 85 will have Alzheimer's disease. And a third of those patients with Alzheimer's disease will have sleep problems. And there are things we talked about already, the sleep fragmentation, difficulty initiating sleep, maintaining sleep. How many have heard this word before? Sundowning, when the nighttime comes and you're just not gonna be yourself. Or how many people with Alzheimer's disease or has a loved one, they're napping during the day and you're like, okay, and these are all things that we see when you have Alzheimer's disease and have sleep problems. And I think about medications because, you know, I do manage a lot of neurology patients in the sleep clinic and I look at their meds. How many patients with Alzheimer's are on denazepril? Uh, like everyone, you know? And when you're on denazepril, well, how does it work? It's acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. And acetylcholine is an alerting neurotransmitter. So, of course, you're going to get some insomnia. But acetylcholine is also a neurotransmitter when you go into REM sleep. So they get vivid dreams. And I hear this all the time. And I have my patients who are elderly, and they're on, well, let me throw some names out there, Seroquel, Zyprexa, Risperidone. You know what I mean? All these medications are going to knock you out at night and cause worsening sleep problems. So let's start off with circadian rhythm. So there's something called irregular sleep-wake phase disorder, and it's characterized by which of the following? So let's see if anyone can get this one. Is this irregular sleep-wake phase characterized by multiple irregular sleep and wake episodes throughout a 24-hour period? That sounds pretty good. Is it an endogenous circadian rhythm that cannot be entrained by light? Is it consolidative sleep periods during the day? Or is it most often observed in individuals who are unfortunately blind? Which one jumps out at you? And once again, I hope you could see me live one day, but the answer is going to be A. So when we talk about this irregular circadian rhythm disorder, I kind of look at this chart over here on the right. I put the big ones here. One's called delays sleep phase disorder. And those are going to be individuals who sleep really, really late at night, like two, three in the morning and they wake up later. And I'm sure someone has a college student or high school student that's like 18 years of age that doesn't go to bed. They're probably what we call a night owl. We mentioned as you get older, you're tending to be that morning lark, the advanced sleep phase where you sleep much earlier in the evening and wake up unfortunately earlier in the morning. And, and then there's this irregular, which we talked about. And look at this pattern over here. There's just, there's no rhyme and reason to it. They're just sleeping all over the place, no consolidative sleep. 
And this non-24, we call N24 right now on the bottom, these are people who aren't blind, so they can't be entrained by light, so they sleep later and later and later. But this irregular sleep phase uh, disorder I just mentioned, it's seen in older individuals, seen with patients with Alzheimer's, they cannot consolidate their sleep. What do you do with them? You want to reinforce circadian cues. Don't be throwing medications at them. That's not the way to go. Try to, you know, uh, try to wake up during the day, have a routine, have a schedule. You mean work on sleep hygiene. When you're institutionalized, like in the hospital, that's not the time to use melatonin. There are poor data about that. But maybe if there is still in their home, maybe there might be a role about the timing of the melatonin. But the big thing is, is not throwing medications at him, giving him a good sleep hygiene and a good schedule. So this kind of puts in words uh, what I was just saying, that there are two main types of circadian rhythm problems. Problems where your pacemaker of sleep, which we call the super chiasmatic nucleus, <laughs> I just wanted to say that, is actually not working well. And I mentioned about the different types, you know, the advanced, delayed, free running, and irregular. But there are other types where the problem is not the pacemaker of sleep, it's everything around in society. So what are some examples of that? jet lag, shift work disorder, and yes, daylight savings. Don't forget, you have to fall back tomorrow and you get that uh, extra hour of sleep, which, you know, it's just going to probably cause more problems than anything else. Um, so let's talk about obstructive sleep apnea. I think that this is very important. So when we think about obstructive sleep apnea, let me just say it's more than just snoring, okay? And how do people with sleep apnea present? They could have headaches, daytime sleepiness. They could have waking, impaired memory, moodiness. They could have that choking and gasping sensation at night or sweating up a storm at night. And having obstructive sleep apnea, look how many things is associated with depression, heart attack, stroke, atrial fibrillation, type 2 diabetes. What is this? Alzheimer's disease. So there are many, many associations when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea. So let me throw out a question for everyone listening today. Which of the following is true regarding obstructive sleep apnea in the elderly? Is obstructive sleep apnea more prevalent in elderly men than in elderly women? Is obesity a strong risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea in the elderly compared to the younger folk? C, the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea decreases with age? Or D, older adults are more likely to report snoring and more likely to report, uh, are, I'm sorry, older adults are less, less, less likely to report snoring and more, more, more likely to report nocturia, going to the bathroom at night, than younger people. What do you think? What do you think? You know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to give you the answer here, but for time's sake, the answer here is going to be D as in dog. So let's talk about that. So the first one was going to be about, you know, gender. So when everyone is a little bit younger, definitely men have more sleep apnea than women. But as women get older, whether it's going to be because of menopause and hormones, there's actually a one-to-one. -one. So women kind of make up for it when it comes to OSA as we get older. Uh, when we talk about obesity in younger individuals, obesity is a huge risk factor in younger individuals. But unfortunately, as people get older, that, you know, maintaining weight is really hard. So it's not as important. And when we talk about younger individuals, I mean, the chance of having sleep apnea uh, when you're a woman or a man when you're younger is around 9% for women, 24% for men. 
But as you get older, the chance of getting sleep apnea increases 30 to 40% when you're older. So it's something we just can't blow off. But when it comes to that nocturia, going to the bathroom, that's something that really is an issue as you get older. And that's what actually they mentioned. So it's funny when you talk about snoring that, you know, when you're younger, oh man, everyone's telling on their bed partner, my wife snores, my husband snores. But I think when you're older, you're like, whatever. <laughs> I lived with it for all these years. I'm not going to report them anymore. So it's not as frequently reported. So how do you treat, you know, uh, a sleep apnea? You know, it's, it's tough, you know, and why did I put this picture here is because I wanted to show you my, my awesome dad. You already met my mom and this is my oldest kid, Mina. And there was a time where I thought my dad had obstructive sleep apnea. I gave him a, you know, a sleep apnea test. And the minute I told him I was testing for sleep apnea, what is the first thing that he panicked about? You're not putting that mask on me, you know? So I had to think about some reasons why. So, you know, I would say that in general, the evidence for PAP, you know what I mean? Uh, the benefit for older individuals is not as robust. We have more data about the benefits of CPAP in younger individuals, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. But it was interesting, older people tend to be just as compliant wearing the CPAP mask as younger. Nocturia, which we mentioned already, is a significant factor in PAP non-adherence. So what they always tell me, which is, hey, Dr. Raj, I'm going to the bathroom. And once I go to the bathroom, I'm not putting that mask back on my face. So you just, you know, keep your CPAP machine. Um, you know, it's, I always think about using a dental, comp uh, a dental device in the elderly, but it's hard because dentures, you probably don't even have enough teeth left, not to be mean. So I, I can't use dental devices as much. Positional therapy may be an option, you know what I mean? Because elderly tend to be a little bit thinner, a little bit not as obese. So positional therapy may have a role. So what about cognitive function? You know what I mean? So a couple things. I think my biggest passion, if my dad had obstructive sleep apnea, was to treat it because of his cognitive function, you know? And this picture wasn't from a long ago. This was like a, from a few weeks ago. And this is my dad. And he's always as happy like this. This is how he always is. And he's actually playing with my, my little girl, Sadie, who you met, you know? So when you have obstructive sleep apnea, it contributes to a worsening executive function, worsening memory, You're not as alert, not as attentive. And it's important to realize that the severity of disease, how bad is your obstructive sleep apnea, really correlates with how bad it's gonna affect your cognitive uh, dysfunction. And especially if you're going to be older and you desaturate during the sleep study, being hypoxic and having obstructive sleep apnea is even worse. So you want to actually think about not just the sleep apnea, but having nocturnal desaturations. And of course, what happens with obstructive sleep apnea, multiple awakenings and arousals throughout the night, it makes the sleep fragmentation even worse, you know? So if we do treat the OSA, you know, in older individuals, CPAP uh, has improvements on attention, their psychomotor, uh, psychomotor speed, executive function, and recall. And memory does improve in a dose-dependent way, meaning that the more they wear it, the more benefit that these individuals are going to get. So once again, I wanted to get you some data about CPAP in Alzheimer's disease. You know what I mean? And this was very interesting. So if you only give them a six-week trial of CPAP use, there really wasn't any change in cognition. But if you're a mean doctor and you make music for a year, well, there was data to show there was some less cognitive decline. There was improvement in depressive symptoms, improvement in daytime somnolence, improvement in subjective sleep qualities when they were given questionnaires. 
And, you know, they're improvement for caregivers because the caregivers are reporting my, my husband, my wife is sleeping better. And, um, and also it may reduce, may reduce premature institutionalization, meaning chance of going to a nursing home is not as quick, you know, and definitely severe OSA and Alzheimer's disease studies show a slower decline over three years in those treated with CPAP versus not treated. So, you know, we're not flying totally blind. We always could use more research with OSA and Alzheimer's disease. But, you know, I think that it really changed my practice because if I have someone who has a support and wants to use CPAP, I am going to encourage it in those individuals. So let's talk about REM movement disorder. So I'm going to whip through this one because it is long. There's a 72-year-old guy, his medical history notable of something of, of mild cognitive impairment, comes to your office with a prior history of something called REM sleep behavior disorder. I'll talk about it. He was previously diagnosed by another sleep specialist after his wife reports episodes which the patient would yell angrily at the middle of the night, would not respond to efforts to console him. They did a sleep study and it reveals no evidence of sleep apnea, no movements of the limbs at night. Overt behaviors were not recorded during the sleep study, but there was some increased muscle tone during REM sleep, which is weird because in REM, most of us are just paralyzed. You should be to protect the mechanism. He was prescribed some clonazepam, which is a benzodiazepine, but was not able to start the therapy because he was relocating to live closer to his kids. He started taking the clonazepam, the benzodiazepine, uh, a week ago, and while these yelling out at night times have resolved. He's now reporting morning sleepiness because he's on clonazepam. And he said, screw this, I'm not taking the medication. He stopped it. So now he's not taking the medication to help out with these punching and kicking and yelling at night. So which one of these medications would you now recommend? So would you say, okay, you didn't rec uh, do clonazepam. Let me give you Valium, which is diazepam. Let me give you a tricyclic antidepressant known as nortriptyline. Let me give you a, an antidepressant called Wellbutrin, known as bupropion, or maybe just go to Walgreens or Rite Aid and pick up some melatonin. What seems to be the right answer when you want to treat just REM sleep behavior disorder? And I wish I had all the time in the world, but I'm going to have to tell this to everyone. The answer is simple melatonin, man. So let's talk about REM movement disorders and the broader picture of this, which is what? Parasomnias. So parasomnias are undesirable physical events or experiences that occur as you're falling asleep, as you're waking up or transitioning between the different stages of sleep. So what are these, you know, unwanted things that are happening? These are movements. These are emotions. These are perceptions. They can even be dreams. But the good news is, is that in adults, most parasomnias are treatable and we have things to correct the underlying disorder and medications to treat some of these parasomnias. So when I categorize parasomnias, how do I characterize them? Well, some of these parasomnias happen in non-REM sleep. These are things like confusional arousals, where how many times have you or a loved one just woke up in the middle of the night, mumbled a few words, and then went back to bed? Kind of a confusional arousal. For my parents out there, their kids may have sleep terrors, which are just yells and screams where they're unconsolable. Uh-oh, sleepwalking. That's not a joke, it's a real thing. And what drugs make you sleepwalk? Ambien. What about lithium for their bipolar disorder? But some parasomnias happen in REM sleep where you have those vivid dreams. And in REM sleep, you should be paralyzed with most of your muscles as a protective mechanism because you don't want to reenact your dreams. But people who have REM behavior disorder, they reenact their dreams, they're moving. And trust me, folks, 
these dreams are not of them playing chess in Sudoku. These are <laughs> dreams of like them being chased by pirates. So that's where their bed partners get hurt, get punched in the face, you know? So when we talk about some of the worst combinations, so what will make you have a parasomnia? What will make you sleepwalk? Never, ever, ever mix alcohol with sleeping aids. That's the worst combination. And yes, this person actually sleptwalked off a six-story building. I'm not joking. So back to REM behavior disorder, like how do we treat it? Well, number one, you mean there, you come see me, I'll tell you how to make the right diagnosis. It does involve the sleep study. I do want to look for underlying things I could treat. I do want to look at your medication list and see if you're on certain medications like SSRIs or SNRIs. But uh, I definitely, when I treat you after I make the diagnosis, I protect yourself, protect others. It's all about just being safe. But medications include clonazepam. It is a benzodiazepine. It has a lot of side effects. It does have daytime sleepiness. Uh, but another medication that has good data about it is just simple melatonin. And this is one of the few times I'll use the higher doses of melatonin, maybe around 8 milligrams, even up to 12 milligrams sometimes to treat it. But the thing of why neurology always wants to send people to me when they make this disorder is because of Parkinson's disease, that there is a strong correlation with these groups of diseases called alpha synucleopathies. I hate saying that word. And these are going to be things like Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, uh, multi-system atrophy in the olden days. I think we call that shy dragger. So these are things that are associated when you have REM sleep behavior disorder. So for my last topic, uh, I just want to talk about insomnia. And I know that uh, everyone uh, has experienced insomnia. And it comes down to, Doc, why can't I have a sleeping pill? <laughs> so insomnia, everyone, is a difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep, waking up too early, but you got to have adequate time to sleep. Chronic insomnia is having symptoms for three months, and you have symptoms at least three times a week. And people who get insomnia, they may be predisposed to it. Let's say they have depression, they have a family history of that. A precipitating event could be loss of a loved one, bereavement, you know, and then many people who get an acute episode of insomnia start doing things that keep the, make the insomnia worse, like drinking alcohol or going to bed too early. So there are people that perpetuate the insomnia. Insomnia is caused by, you know what, many things, many psychiatric conditions, medical conditions, medications, primary sleep disorders, you know, having circadian rhythm issues. So insomnia is definitely going to be multifactorial. And when I diagnose you with insomnia, there are different subtypes over there, and I kind of listed these subtypes, but let me just quickly go through each one, and I'm aware of the time, so uh, what are going to be some of these subtypes out there? There could be the acute adjustment insomnia, we mentioned this already, a life-changing event, a death, a wedding, you know what I mean, an acute illness of yourself or a loved one, and usually this insomnia goes away on its own. Idiopathic insomnia is something where I see patients that it, nothing works for them. And they tell me, I've been on every medication doctor. And some of these have had insomnia since their childhood. But this insomnia, I think everyone can relate to, which is going to be, they just got some poor sleep hygiene, which is why we say, hey, get the TV out of the bedroom. But it's funny when I say the word TV, I forget these young folks. They don't use televisions. They use what? iPhones and iPads and technology Put the technology away. Don't stare at the clock. And, you know, and of course, don't eat late at night and all these things. But um, I put this picture here for one reason, because I'm getting older. So does anyone know what movie this picture is from over here? 
Well, I did a lecture the other day and someone raised their hand. It was a live lecture and said, that movie is The Ring. And I'm like, The Ring? That's Poltergeist. But then again, I'm just getting older. No one knows my movies anymore. And if you wonder what this furry thing is over here, when we talk about eating at night and poor sleep, hormones play a big part of that. Ghrelin is a gain weight hormone. So when you're having insomnia, not sleeping, you get more ghrelin, you gain weight. So when I teach board review courses, I kind of say, hey, uh, this is called a gremlin. And gremlin means eat, 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 because they like to eat, eat in the movie. And you know, when I said that joke, no one laughed because they don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So this shouldn't surprise anyone that it, a lot of technology is making us have poor sleep at night. Uh, the CEO of Netflix says the biggest competition for Netflix is sleep. <laughs> He's probably right. Uh, don't be binge watching at night and never watch Squid Games. You'll never go to sleep again. Um, there are people who have paradoxical insomnia that is called sleep misinterpretation. Those are the patients that come in and say, doctor, I haven't slept in two months. And I'm like, no you'd be dead. But there is sleep misinterpretation and we have things to kind of work this out. But this is a common one where people have anxiety only to sleep. They ruminate about sleep, they get worried about it, and they do things that will make the sleep even worse. So this is what we call psychophysiologic insomnia. But it's very important to look at the medication list as always. Many, 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 many things can cause insomnia. Antidepressants, bronchodilators, steroids, things that are going to be stimulants. So looking at the med list is very important. How do you diagnose it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You don't need to have a sleep study. I only do a sleep study when I think about things like sleep apnea or for other, you know, sleep-related reasons, but not for insomnia. It's all about getting a good history, having a sleep log, or doing something called actigraphy. Actigraphy, I'm sure you want to know what it is, is kind of like wearing this little wristband over here. And this wristband is kind of like you wearing those technology like a Fitbit or something. And it tells me the truth behind your sleep. So it has an accelerometer. So if you're moving, it tells me if you're moving. And if you're moving, you're not sleeping. It has light sensors. So it tells me, you know, for the person who says they haven't slept in two months, it'll tell me the truth behind your sleep. It's called actigraphy. And of course, you know, many of you folks have this new technology. They always, you know, show me their technology, their phones. What does the app say of how long you're sleeping with? And we are actually getting into that realm of sleep medicine where I'm using some of these apps to help determine uh, what their total sleep time is. But as I'm nearing the end, let me just say, how do I treat insomnia? The mainstay treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognition is going to be your action. It is going to be your thoughts. Behaviors are going to be your actions. And cognitive behavioral therapy is the most important acutely and chronically. What are some forms of CBT? I'm just going to go to these bottom two right here. Sleep restriction is basically set bedtime, set wake time, even on Friday nights and Saturday nights, you know, even on holidays. You always want to wake up early during the day and uh, in the morning and go to bed consistently at nighttime. Stimulus control means one thing. The bed is only meant for one thing, which is what? No, it's not that. I, I read your mind. It's not that. It's meant for what? Sleeping. And if you can't sleep within 20 minutes when you're in the bed, leave the bed and do things non-stimulating and dim light and only go back to bed when you're ready to sleep. But I just wanna mention a few things about drugs because I know it's important that no matter what drug you're on, a sedative hypnotic, they don't improve daytime performance. This is the American uh, Geriatric Society, what they call the beers list. All sedative hypnotics are not wanted or, or discouraged in the elderly because of what? Falls. I don't want anyone to fall. 
And there are many drug categories out there. One of these categories are the non-benzodiazepine receptor activators. These are drugs like Zolpidem, like Ambien, Zalpalone, which is called Sonata, Azopalcone with Lunesta. All these have different half-lives. And why is that important? Because I use certain drugs uh, who have short half-lives for sleep onset insomnia. And I use uh, uh, drugs with longer half-lives if you have more of that sleep maintenance insomnia or early morning awakenings. Other agents, melatonin is not a drug. It is not a drug. It's a dietary supplement, okay? And uh, it doesn't really help out with sleep. It's really good for your circadian rhythm. So my take-home message is, it's all about the timing of the melatonin, not the dose. But there's another category of drug, which is a melatonin agonist, which is something where uh, it's good for sleep onset insomnia. And this medication has antihistamine effects. Remember, histamine is an alerting neurotransmitter, so when you block it, it makes you sleepy. Uh, and this drug is doxepin. It was initially a tricyclic antidepressant, but it got FDA approval for sleep maintenance insomnia at low, tiny, tiny, low doses. So the antihistamine effect makes him sleepy, but it also has anticholinergic effect. And that, for my doctors listening there, is a huge side effect profile, especially people who have urinary retention, they can't stand the, the dry mouth. So you always wanna be cognizant of those side effects. And the last drug I wanna mention, this is going to be the hot topic in sleep medicine for insomnia. These are called DORA's dual orexin receptor antagonist. Orexin is a neurotransmitter that's alerting that only is involved with sleep, only is involved with sleep. So if you block it, it makes you sleepy and you don't get a lot of the drug-drug interactions with many other medications. So these are gonna be the generic names down here, Suvorexin, brand name Balsamra, uh, generic name Limborexin, brand name Davigo. And this is another medication out there. And what I love about these drugs is that they're studying them in Alzheimer's patients. And that just touches me here in my heart that you know pharmaceutical companies are really trying to get data in the patient population that really needs the most help when it talks about sleep. Be careful of all these herbal remedies. I know everyone here loves their valerian root and their lavender and their CBD and their tryptophan. All of this is limited data, what dose, what route, all these things are very important uh, to consider and always tell your doctor if you're taking any of these medications. And with that being said, I know I went over, I just wanna teach so much, I apologize. I just wanna say thank you for letting me be here. I know I want to stick around and do some questions for everyone, but gotta go. So promise not to laugh at me. But if you have any questions, I the best way to get a hold of me is on my Instagram. I hear you laughing now. Don't laugh. So if you go to at doctor underscore Raj underscore, I love. I always put up free stuff for sleep medicine. You could always like uh, ask me questions there. And I have two podcasts. This is a Doctor Raj podcast. All stuff about wellness and health. And if you really like to be super dorky and geeky and want to hear me talk about medicine 24 hours a day, my other podcast is called Beyond the Pearls. And with that being said, I want to say thank you for inviting me today. And if my parents are listening, hope you love this, mom and dad. Love you very much. Thank you. Dr. Raj, I know you have to leave, but would you, if we didn't make you wait until the last physician spoke, could you take one or two questions right now? Because there are a couple in the chat. Boy, if you give me like an extra like hundred dollars on the side, I will give you an extra. I'm sorry, did I say that? Oh my god! Extra hundred percent of what we're already paying. Okay, give me those questions. Okay, real quick. Um, (laughs) Just 
just a couple that are really good. What are current recommendations regarding daytime napping for the elderly over 70? Awesome question. So the answer is this in broad strokes is that, you know, regardless of age, who would really benefit from napping are people who are going to be sleep deprived, sleep deprived. And as we get older, there was it was a topic to say, you know, if you're going to be in older individuals, if they nap too much, will that cause problems with cognition? Or if they didn't nap at all, did it cause problems? And I think what it really came down to is that if you nap and you keep it within a certain time frame, then there would be benefits. So what is a appropriate duration of a nap? The appropriate duration of a nap is going to be around 20 to 30 minutes. And I know you're going to say, why, Dr. Raj? It's because when you nap, you want to get into the lighter stages of sleep. You know what I mean, you don't want to go into the deep stages because when you go to the deeper stages, when you wake up, you're going to feel tired and groggy and you're not going to be yourself. So my answer is for elderly individuals, if you're sleep deprived, take a nap, make someone wake you up, keep it around 20 minutes. But of course, if these naps turn out to be hours and two hours, I think it's time to see a sleep specialist or see, you know, your primary care doctor. And for the caregivers out there, keep a journal of your loved ones about when they wake up, when they go to bed. Maybe they're approaching this irregular circadian rhythm pattern. Okay, one more. I promise and then we'll let you go. <laughs> That's um, okay. That's cool. What is, Dr. Raj, what is your experience of clients reporting more vivid dreams with the use of melatonin? Oh, great question. Yeah, I thought you'd want these. Yeah. So, you know, that's why you have to follow me on Instagram. I just did an article, uh, did an interview about this. So there's no data that says that melatonin by itself actually causes vivid dreams. But people have reported, I have seen it, it's all over the internet. I know you're going to Google after we're done talking about melatonin. So I'm not discarding it. But the problem is, it's melatonin plus what else? Is it melatonin plus a little alcohol? Is it melatonin plus the Benadryl or Unisom that you bought over the counter on? You know what I'm talking about. So I think it's when you take the melatonin plus something else or people just cranking up the dose of the melatonin, that may cause it. But there are some associations, but, you know, I don't have patients saying, Raj, what did you do? I'm getting these vivid dreams. You know what I mean? But I don't want to like repeat myself, but I have heard multiple times people taking denazepril because of the way it works, they get vivid dreams and they do get nightmares. And as you get older, if you're starting to, you know, get more of these dreams of being in the war or being chased, you got to think about post-traumatic stress or you got to start thinking about this REM movement disorder. Great question. Dr. Raj, thank you for that enlightening and uh, great presentation. It's very entertaining. We can all relate to sleep. If I were in here right now, that's probably where I'd be. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. Thank you, everyone, for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Mm-hmm.